At the age of 18, my friend Mags, my elder by two weeks, was my idea of a perfect woman with a perfect life. She had beauty, brains, a supportive family and a drop-dead gorgeous fiancé. I would constantly reiterate the mantra, Oh, Mags, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. But she ran away at the altar, and when I met up with her again a couple of years later, she was a different woman, crushed and unattractive. After our four years in Australia, I was now a wife and mother. JC, Stevie and I returned briefly to the UK en route to Canada. Mags, also married different husband with kids, was living the life of a miner's wife in a small Welsh village. Now, part three. Our two years in Ottawa had been wonderful. JC's postdoctoral fellowship had given him kudos. While I had managed to continue juggling study, motherhood and, most unexpected, the opportunity to work for the Canadian Prime Minister. However, our visas were running out and we had to make the big decision. Where now? But in truth, we had given it little consideration. The options were simple. Resume life back in Australia where we had Mr. Great Game of Footy in the four years away or return to Australia and continue the big adventure. The adventure won. We were going back to Oz. Due to some unique circumstances, both the Canadian and Australian government were obligated to pay our fares, so we returned on the Orsova, first class. This was fortuitous for me, as I was heavily pregnant and not a happy camper through most of the voyage. However, we had travelled in relative luxury, though I hasten to add sea travel luxury circa 1970 had a very different meaning to current cruising. It turned out that our return to Australia was exactly the right choice for yet another reason. The anticipated longevity from Mags when bantering the See you later, alligator, was somewhat less than expected because it turned out my eloquence on all of Australia's assets had been heeded more than we had thought. Mags and Taff had also decided to throw their hat into the ring and become £10 poms, as we had six years earlier but their experience was vastly different from ours. Whereas we had flown out to a job, Mags and Taff came out on the migrant ship that had taken us back to the UK, the Fair Sky. The Sitmar line had the migrant contract, taking the young hopefuls out to a new life and the disappointed and disgruntled ones back to the UK. We had been the exception to the rule, choosing to travel with them for economy but the experience had been woeful. By any standards, cheap or otherwise, the ships were junk. The food scarce and atrocious, and seasickness a six weeks way of life. Having arrived in Australia, their life was not much better. As migrants, they were housed in a thousand capacity Sydney hostel. As a family of four, they were aligned a small room with four bunks, four chairs, a fold-up table, and four hooks on the walls for clothes. So in our correspondence, while once again I had waxed lyrical about Canada, she had addressed her letters from Starlag 13. I thought this very amusing until we actually visited it, and then I thought she had overrated it. They had been there about six months 
when we returned from Canada on the Orsova. With limited savings, they had managed to buy a ramshackle old Ostian car. No seat belts back then, so the four kids sat on our knees. For all our so-called luxury of first-class sailing, I was delighted to be back on terra firma after the three weeks of life on the ocean waves. But I changed my opinion very quickly when entering the hostel which Mags and Taff were calling home. Words almost fail to describe the living conditions. In addition to the small Nissan huts, the austere one-room sleeping quarters, the crowded institution-like conditions of eating in a huge tin shed with 1,000 other migrants, the heat, the cold, the stench of overflowing bathrooms and toilets, sick children and limited washing facilities only covers half the horror. It must also be remembered that while many of the people taking the government opportunity of a new life in a new country, there were many who were simply dissatisfied with their life in the UK. This may have been because they had been born into disadvantage or had bad luck, but it would be equally true to say that many were lazy, arrogant and work-shy. Their morals and manners were questionable, and their language coarse and vulgar. Yet, everyone was quite rightly treated equal. The trouble was, if you objected to the way your neighbours left the washroom, or cursed their children, or got drunk, or abused each other, you just had to put up with it. Oh yes, there were supervisors, but most of them were simply open to a bit of sly graft and would sympathise with the biggest bidder. Mags and Taff were stuck with it, and at that time there was little hope of getting out in the near future. The good news was that Taffy had managed to get a job working as a painter on the Sydney Bridge, so had a regular wage coming in. His colleague was Paul Hogan. However, the difference between his cash in hand after paying for the hostel was sorrowful, with hardly any opportunity for saving with a view of moving on and out. And he was considered one of the lucky ones. Most of the inhabitants were totally on the welfare. We had found cheap lodgings nearby, with the intention of spending a couple of days with them before continuing on our journey to what was to be our new home, a small university town called Toowoomba, 600 miles north in Queensland. So for the payment of a few pounds we were allowed to eat with the inmates of the hostel and enjoy all the facilities. But in truth even a few hours was enough for me to gain an insight into what was a normal day in their life. A good many of their fellow hosteliers had come from the north of England. Scottish, Irish and Welsh accents mingled with those from Liverpool and Hull. Some so strong I could barely understand them. Most had come, like Mags and Taff, as family units, so the limited tarmac space between huts always seemed to be crowded with early primary age kids. In fairness, they were like kids anywhere. A ball would provide soccer, a few extra pegs and different ball, and you had cricket. A skipping rope could be used individually or in groups, and a few wooden rods provided the popular dinky cars with racetracks that could entertain for hours. The parents were a different matter. My eyes took in as much a hopeless state as the one they had probably left half a world away. Worse even, as at least in the old country they would have had a back history of school and knowledge of local living. 
with most of the men at work, or down the pub, or in the recreational room of the hostel, which housed one fly-blown pool table, the women were left to their own devices. With no food to prepare or housework to take their time, such time as they had was taken up gossiping, which often led to verbal fights and occasionally physical ones. The old adage proved true. The most important thing to pack when changing countries is a good attitude. And this Mags had in spades. Somehow, as in Aberafan, Mags would find a cheerful Mags would find a cheery word, a joke, a phrase or two of admiration for a hairdo, a scarf, or a new shade of lipstick. She would organize games for the kids and small tea parties for those celebrating a birthday or anniversary. Once again, she fit in. I was in awe. So while this time my farewell to Mags was far less emotive, on the other I felt my familiar sense of guilt. My experience of Australia was so vastly different from the one that Mags was experiencing. Yet I was convinced it had been my eloquence that had been the deciding factor for them to leave England. Now they were in a mess, and I could see no way that they could get out of it. Even so, with the temperament of youth, I confidently assumed that the 600 miles between Sydney and Toowoomba would not be much of a barrier to regular visits. We were to travel by train across the border and would be met by J.C.'s new professor. There we would be lodged in a hotel for a few weeks while we found something more permanent. So when the time came for us to embark on the last leg of our journey, we stood once more as a group at Sydney Central Railway Station to say our goodbyes. My usual refrain of, see you later alligator, on the surface was quite optimistic. I had so much to look forward to. Yet, once again, Mag's smile and sparkling eyes showed equal optimism with just a hint of what behind them. My assumptions turned out to be rather rose-coloured as our first few months were taken up finding somewhere to live in a country town yet to recognise the value of flats and apartments. And a good deal of time was spent with JC fitting into his new job and me delivering our new son. This turned out to be a little more complicated than expected too, with mother and son going through a sobering near-death experience. My recovery was long and painful. But a new project was soon to take over our lives. As once settled, we began the exciting prospect of designing and building our own home. Our snail mail correspondence resumed. Mag sent a regular newsletter from Starlight 13 and made light of what I knew from my one visit to be horrendous conditions. She painted a Dickensian picture of all the rogues and mishaps and managed to turn their lifestyle into comic relief. Yet there was little doubt that underneath the vignettes there were some very nasty happenings. But good news eventually came from bad. Mag's father died suddenly, not even an opportunity for a quick return to England to say goodbye, and he had left her a substantial sum of money that allowed them to buy a modest house in a Sydney suburb. Our two families were finally at some form of equilibrium. 
two kids apiece, working husbands, and new homers while still young. Life was indeed a bowl of cherries. The years began their steady climb, and our friendship never lessened in spite of the tyranny of distance. Even when we both experienced the luxury of having mainline telephones installed in our homes, phone calls were still an indulgence. A ten-minute timed call could still cost a day's wage. But travel, if prepared to rough it, was still comparatively cheap. First they came up to visit us in Queensland, then we went down to visit them. No mean feat either, I may add. A 12-hour car ride with two small youngsters, no air conditioning, no takeaway, food stores, and comfort stops relegated to the nearest bush or tree with a Look out for snakes! warning. With our holidays longer, JC and I began to make a regular Christmas pilgrimage to Sydney. A gleaming opera house on the edge of the stunning Sydney harbour, framed against the bridge, meant that Sydney was now recognised on the international tourist map. Of course, by now the four of us were mature marrieds, and with kids at school, both Max and I became members of the maligned breed of working mothers. It turned out that Australian businesses loved to employ English women in prime positions. Apparently, our accent gave them a touch of class. But Max did better than I did by far. First of all, there is no doubt that big cities offer more opportunities than country towns, but she was also back on form. Her natural skills, business acumen and good looks meant that she rapidly went up the corporate ladder of an employment agency. Whenever I tried to plan a visit with them, she would need to consult her diary. Her normal day consisted of breakfast meetings, business lunches and after dinner meet and greets. Taff happily moved into the role of semi-house husband and chauffeur to the kids while still trying to juggle his work as a labourer on the harbour bridge. With our lives in comparison very mundane, Our visits down south were planned with anticipation of hearing about this exciting life, and for me sometimes, briefly, being part of it. Oh, Max, you're so lucky. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. On the domestic front, though, it was the same old, same old. Even though in mid-primary school, this simply meant that Tim and Stevie were bigger and nastier enemies to each other with both fathers having to stand constantly on guard against near-fight-to-the-death vendettas, and four-year-old Sarah had become a spoilt brat. The years went by. At the time, I would have said that little changed, but when looking back, I could see those small changes in their lives were beginning to mount. Those after-work meetings were lasting longer, so much so that Taff would not even make the assumption she would be home for the family dinner. And when she did get home, her voice would be loud and her laughter brittle. There would be a distinct aroma of alcohol on her breath, and her movements belied her insistence that she had only had a couple of G&Ts. Yet Taffy was totally loyal to this newly emerging Mags. There was always the excuse of how she had to keep up with the young unmarried professionals, constantly baying at her heels for her job and the kids' needs meant more dependence on her salary. 
Even on a good week with masses of overtime, Taft's work as a builder labourer could only bring in a fraction of his wife's pay. To overcome this, he eventually changed his job and became a warden in Pendridge Prison. A tough and dangerous career move, but it did bring in more money. Back in my country town, I had continued with academic studies and found life rich and full as well as challenging, yet somehow I never felt these accomplishments worthy of discussion with my friend whenever we met. It seemed that her life always overrode mine, and I still showered her with admiration and sometimes even envy. Yet little by little I could sense a canker in this sophisticated, glamorous lifestyle that was so different from my own. They had made one or two trips north to visit with us, but Mag showed little interest in what I saw as my growing accomplishments. I had learnt to sew, with curtain strapes and cushions and a wardrobe of self-designed clothes to prove it. These were days long before the master chefs had taken to the television, so my passion for Epicurean meals were the delight of my family and friends. Yet Mags would leave everything half-touched because she needed to lose weight or desperately needed a cigarette and my growing paper trail of degrees were considered no more than a fanciful whim to fill time. Almost imperceptibly, our visits were less frequent and shorter. I guess if I'm honest, the friendship was now a little lopsided. If anything, we were back to being more of Taft's friend than Mags, who was always busy, so it was on his encouragement that we made a few more visits, although their Sydney home was becoming very cramped as our children grew into adolescence. One visit in particular brought home to me the realisation that their marriage was in dire straits and the family disintegrating into shreds. I learned after a few days that Mags was almost openly having an affair with the guy next door. On the rare occasions she was home, she was often totally inebriated. By now she had left most of the domestic duties to the still lovesick Taffy, and he in turn was trying to cope with two highly rebellious teenagers. He tried to regain a little stature by working overtime for even more money and would come home with the house in turmoil, finding Tim had allowed an open house party to take over. He showed us photographs after one such occasion, when Tim's fellow teenage renegade had become blotto-drunk, urinated over the lounge and spread excretia all over the walls. This behaviour barely incurred a comment from Mags, who, if anything, would take sides with her son in a giggling... <laughs> Boys will be boys, retort before leaving the house for Taffy to clean up. One day, a desperate Taff asked me to fly down and talk to her, perhaps persuade her to get medical help. Fool that I was, I cooked up a load of cakes and pies to stack in the fridge and freezer for JC and the boys, and then I made use of the long weekend that was coming up to fly down to Sydney. Taff picked me up from the airport and on the journey to the house filled me in on some of the later developments. Yet even now he was loyal to his wife as far as he was able. He even admitted liability in marrying her back in England and taking her to the simple rustic life in Wales. Then to Australia. He implied that her change in personality was all his fault. When we got to the house... I found a wall of resentment from Tim and Sarah and Mag, who was in an alcoholic stupor. I tried to talk to her, just small talk really, 
and got a rail of abuse for my pains. She verbally ranted at me in a vocabulary more fitting for a wharfie and brought to the fore a litany of all my inadequacies. I simply crumbled. Taffy now came to my rescue and tried to divert some of the disjointed accusations that were not even recognisable. This put her over the edge. In fact, the tirade ended in a verbal fight with the teenage kids also, obviously the worse for drink, taking sides in favour of their mother. She now slammed into them, accusing them of holding her back, wishing they had never been born. Finally, the irate and highly volatile Mags made a dramatic exit by slamming doors and walking out of the lives of everyone who loved her. The long trip back home to the semi-tropics gave me plenty of time to reflect and think. What had happened? How had we drifted apart so much? Where was all this angst and vitriol coming from? And why? She had so much to be thankful for. Although I had received the brunt of Mag's anger this time, it was pretty apparent that I was not alone, and others were the recipients from time to time. My heart ached for Taff, who had endured so much. Would she come back to him? Would he want her? Would I? Either way, what was also apparent was that yet again, Mags had left me and all those who loved her. You have been listening to The Golden Girl Part 3, written and narrated by Brianda Cross. Please look out for The Golden Girl Part 4, Conclusion, in a few days. Thank you.